You're listening to Western Sydney Health Check, a podcast talking all things health, providing current and accurate healthcare information for the community and our staff. I'm Sia. And I'm Harrison. And we'll be taking you through this podcast. Welcome everyone and thank you for joining us for the latest episode of Western Sydney Health Check. Our guest today is our first return guest on the podcast. It's the director of our public health unit, Dr. Shopna Bag. Shopna, thanks for joining us again. No problem. Thanks for having me back, Harrison. Now, the last time you were here, it was the 18th of March. Cases in New South Wales were about to hit 200 a day, and we still were quite confused about what we were dealing with. Obviously, a lot has changed since then. We've all learned a lot more. Uh, You've probably worked more in the last six months than maybe the six years combined before that. (laughs) I think so. (laughs) Um, what, What difference has the last six months sort of made in your life and in your work? I guess the first thing is that um, public health has really developed more of a profile in people's minds. So even within um, our community, but also within our clinical settings and really uh, understanding what contact tracing is, what it involves and some of the challenges. Probably the other thing that's uh, been a huge learning for all of us is learning and growing together about what we know about the virus. How do we actually um, stop it in its tracks? How do we actually work together to move forward, Um, which I think is where we're at now? Mm, Absolutely. Yeah, I've read a lot about contact tracing, as I'm sure most people have. Um, I like the term disease detectives that your team has been given. What's like some of the common reactions that you get from people while you're having this difficult conversation? I think by and large, most people are extremely grateful to have um, won a diagnosis. Um, There is a little bit of element of shock of really what does this actually mean for me, particularly what does it mean for my family um, and friends. And also they worry about if they've inadvertently put anyone else at risk. So it's really about also um, taking them through what we will be doing next so that they don't feel so worried about their contacts because they do worry. Um, I think there is a little um, element of um, what do I need to do next? What happens to me what happens to my family? Do I need to move out of home? Because I don't want to put anyone else at risk. So I think there's a little bit of fear, a little bit of shock. But by and large, everyone has been so grateful. And it's just one of the most challenging times sometimes in their life. Mm. There's a lot of situations and home situations and circumstances that we need to work through with them. So we have a, a quite a large team, different clinical services that we tap into to be able to put those supports around, not just the patient who's got the diagnosis, but also their close contacts, whether it's family or friends or workplace, and really link into services as required. So I imagine for some people, maybe they're living at home alone um, or, you know, suddenly they can't work for a couple of weeks or something like that. Is there support available for them, like financial support, housing, that kind of stuff? So definitely some of the things that we look at immediately is are they safe at this current time? So one, safe from a clinical perspective. So do they need to be assessed in a medical setting? And we've got clinical pathways and our integrated community health team who look after anyone who's diagnosed um, with COVID-19. They do the daily follow-up, you know, over time to make sure if they, you know, sometimes people tend to deteriorate usually after one week or so. Mm -hmm. So in that clinical period, they want to be able to monitor them closely. But when we interview them, we do ask about, do they have a safe place to stay tonight? So we do look at things like accommodation, groceries, 
and there is welfare services through New South Wales um, Services New South Wales, through other uh, partner organisations, and we have a social worker who actually works with us to work through any financial assistance they may be eligible for. We do provide um, an initial um, pack of masks if they need to, just so we know that if they did need to leave for an emergency, they had masks in place, but then really it's working through as they go on, a circumstance might change. We have a social work as well as a clinical team who are able to identify those issues. They always have our contact details or the clinical team details and be able to notify us of a problem and then we'll work through the best solution for that, the case or even their close contacts. You mentioned that term close contacts. Can you just explain briefly what's the difference between a close contact and a casual contact? Someone who's a close contact often is someone who spent 15 minutes or more in face-to-face, less than one and a half metres with someone, um, or in the same closed space for two hours or more. And obviously there's other different factors, like someone who may be doing um, procedures that are considered higher risk. So where you're generating aerosols, someone who might be singing, And if someone is, even though they're keeping one and a half metres, we know that people who sing while they're infectious, it can actually travel that distance. So we Mm. look at the type of activity that a person is doing at the time they're infectious. We look at the time. So whether it's 15 minutes, less than one and a half metres, face-to-face, direct contact, we look at two hours in an enclosed space. And then we look at any other activities that may, may mean required to consider their risk. A casual contact is anyone who has a lower risk of that. So they don't meet those definitions as per the guidelines. But they're individuals that we're asking to do the same thing we're asking everyone in the community is to say, look, you have a lower risk of developing it, but we need you to be vigilant to stay aware of the symptoms, monitor for any symptoms, even though it might be a mild headache or you might just feel a little bit tired to go get tested, stay isolated if you're um, getting tested or if you're feeling unwell, wait for the results to come back and then go from there. Mm. So we are asking people to do a lot. And I know that there's been some talk lately from certain people in the media that we've overreacted, you know, that COVID-19 is no more than the flu and all of these measures that we've put in place aren't really necessary. How do you feel? How do you respond to that sort of talk? I think um, what we do know now is we've got both local evidence, information from our public health and clinical colleagues, as well as in the global literature, um, where we've undertaken um, work within case studies. We've looked at different scenarios and we know that this is more than just the flu. We know that this strain of virus is actually more uh, virulent than just your normal coronaviruses that causes the common cold. We know that the majority of the population in New South Wales, in Western Sydney, as well as the world, are still susceptible. So everyone can get it. We also know that this virus doesn't discriminate in terms of who it it causes an infection in. So it it crosses all age groups. We do find that the children, um, young babies and children tend to have a lower risk. Uh, You know, they tend not to get the infection. And if they do get the infection, they tend to have a very mild illness. But what we've found is that from 
young adults from 20 all the way up to 90s, even 100-year-olds, we find that the infection does cause um, quite a nasty infection. Some people in this age group, so young people, 30s, 20s and 30s and 40s, with no other medical back, uh, conditions, are actually ending up in hospital and requiring support from our ICU colleagues to be able to help them to manage through the infection. We do know that the vast majority of people, 80% of people, will have a very mild illness. Then the last 20% of that, about 15% of them, including young, otherwise well adults, they will have a, a, a nastier infection, may need some hospital support, may need intervention, so a ventilator, a machine that breathes for you, but they should recover mm. and hopefully be able to go back out and get back onto their lives. But the recovery time is another grey area. We don't know how long it takes for people who've gone through such a, an event to get back into feeling completely 100% normal. But 5% of the population who get this infection do actually have a very severe outcome and they die. And in that group of individuals, we find that that tends to be in the very old, as well as those who have other pre-existing comorbidities, so heart conditions, diabetes, and they're the ones who have the worst outcome. But we know that the infection doesn't discriminate and it causes infections throughout all adults as well as children. So it's something that we can't take lightly. We also know that it's actually extremely transmissible, which means it spreads so easily from a person to person. And we know that if we don't take all the measures that we're putting into place, we will see infections and case numbers just increase exponentially. Mm. I want to ask more about that as well, because in March, as you said, the big risk was from overseas travellers, but also we were having, you know, triple digit case numbers, new 150, 200 new cases every day. We had this second wave, I guess, in New South Wales, but the figures never got anywhere near that high, maybe 20 new cases a day or so, now down to between 5 to 10. What was the difference? You know, How did we manage it better the second time around? I think one was knowing who had the highest risk of infection and putting measures into place. So knowing that there were individuals who had a higher risk of getting the infection or bringing the infection from overseas, and that's still there, but we are managing it. So making sure that they can be safely managed, provided clinical care through our, our hotel quarantine mechanism, being able to support them and get tested early, but also be able to isolate them and make sure that they're not spreading it inadvertently to anyone else in the community. So I think that's the big, one of the biggest um, measures that we know has worked very well. Hmm. It's also then all the training and education and systems being put in place in our aged care facilities, in our um, healthcare, set healthcare um, settings. So when we asked, do you have a fever? Do you have any symptoms? Have you been to any of these areas where the risk is highest? So have you recently gone to Victoria? Those measures is because now we understand how the disease can be introduced and we're asking those questions at every turn of, you know, any, any high-risk setting. And I think that's how we're keeping numbers low. Um, the other thing is really putting clinics and making it accessible to everyone, making sure that we're not leaving people out of the community who can't go, who may not be able to afford to go to a GP and they're worried of being charged to get a test or go to see a GP mm. and having clinics that are able to be accessible to all walks of life 
different community backgrounds, making sure we're using our religious and community leaders and our health leaders out in the community to get the message of why do we want people to get tested? Why do we need people to get retested and to not just dismiss anything that they feel might just be a niggle in their throat mm. is actually really keeping people aware. Um, and it's, it, I think we've, we've done a lot of work since March to take everyone along that journey and to better explain to them why it's so important. And we're seeing the efforts of all of that from the community, the health, all our health clinical partners, the non-health partners, schools, childcare, all the systems and the, the restrictions that have been really challenging for businesses and organisations and all of us to get our heads around. Well, all of that has paid off because now we're in a position where we can actually move to reopening Mm. parts of our community, parts of our lives, and trying to look at how can we be COVID safe. Yeah, it's been really encouraging for me to see those testing figures remaining really high and to see people, you know, taking it seriously when I'm out and about in public. I can definitely tell that people are, are hearing the message. You know, what sort of changes have you seen in Western Sydney with the resources that are available and the way people are responding to the message? I think they've been extremely responsive. So there's two parts to it. I think one, we've got a, a system in place within the district where where there are cases or where there's been a case and we've identified a, a number of contacts or so whether it's in a school or a church or even just um, in, in the community, we've been able to mobilise and make sure is there a clinic or a couple of clinics in that space, mm. if we don't have a clinic or we, do we need to put a pop-up and being able to mobilize staff and create a pop-up um, within hours yeah. is probably one of the biggest um, changes I've seen is the speed with which we can set up a testing clinic in a couple of hours. And then the other change I've seen is that the community is so responsive to messages, not only from health and using our social media and the comms team locally through our multicultural partners, but also within our organisations and agencies who rely on health messaging. So when we reach out to them and say, we've identified an area that we'd really like to get the message out, make sure your community is able to understand why we're asking them to get tested. Here's a new pop-up that's been set up for this purpose. I think we're really seeing community responding to that. They're going out, they're getting tested, and we're identifying any of those positives that may be in that area. And I think we need that to continue. But I think we've just seen an amazing response between our organisations from health, outside of health, you know, church leaders, schools, education. It, it's been a real team effort. And, and, you know, across all workplaces, private, public, it's quite a, a real, I guess, for me, a real success of the community coming together. I was wondering if I could make it more personal because as you say, it has been a huge community effort, but a really big part of that has been led by the public health units, you know, across New South Wales. How have you and the team been coping with the workload this year? I think um, probably one, there's, there's nothing like a collegiality between the network, between, so if I think of just within the public health unit and a pop health space, um, you know, there is a lot of love and support from people who either are indirectly um, supporting us. So there's a lot of well wishes, there's a lot of care to look after us. So making sure we go home um, on time, 
getting rest when we need to, being able to say, look, if there's anything that people can do to support the contact tracing efforts, because that needs to continue. Um, we've just been overwhelmed with that support. And then I think it's camaraderie from within the network itself, know, knowing that there's going to be times which are harder than others. Um, and when we've got a, a team that maybe is going through a very busy time with cases and contact tracing, other public health units and other departments within the district really looking up and saying, how can we help during this time? Can we send someone over to help you with other things that we can take off your plate? So there's a real, I think, um, collegiality and support to say we need to look after each other. We need to look after not only our physical well-being but our mental well-being, mm. being able to take some time out in a COVID-safe way. You know, we, we know we can't have big gatherings and I think we know we need to keep reinforcing what we're asking the community to do. We have to do it ourselves. But being able to say there are ways to have a virtual um, catch-up, having a virtual party and being able to say, you know, it's okay to have a bad day but we're going to have a great day tomorrow. Mm. And you get a lot of energy, I think, from feeling like you are able to help the community. Yeah. And and I think we get a lot of well wishes from the community. So a, a lot of families, and they're trusting us with some of the most detailed knowledge of their lives and movements. And, and you know, you, you do feel like you're kind of going on this journey with them. Mm. So I think that's a reward in itself. You know, you get to meet a lot of amazing people working in their own spaces mm. and trying to support their community, their school, their education and their, their families. And I think that's probably the, the lightest part of the days is being able to have a kind of um, a laugh, a bit of a, you know, how you going, celebrate the good times. So imagine when you can't, don't have any more cases within a, um, an environment that you're waiting for the 14 days to be over and you're waiting, okay, any more cases, any more cases. Mm. And you get to the end of the 14 days and you say, yep, that's it. We don't have to worry anymore. And it's, you, you feel like you're celebrating with them. Yeah. And then you, there's also the moments when you feel like you're also, I guess, sad and you're also feeling the pain with communities. And I guess the one thing that really sticks out is, you know, with um, some of our community members who've been probably, you know, older, they've unfortunately passed away. We've got to know the entire family because mm. of the case interviews. Many of them were cases themselves. And when you hear that one of their family members has unfortunately passed um, during that time, you're really mourning with that family. You're mourning with that community because, and you know that you can't be there for them. Mm. And sometimes they might be in isolation, so they can't be there with each other in the community to really grieve the, the way that they would normally want to. But by and large, everyone wants to do the right thing. They mm. don't want to affect or cause any more pain to anyone else. But being able to see that pain sometimes is quite difficult. So as a team, being able to recognize that, acknowledge and celebrate it, mourn with them and also be able to feel like if we could do one thing to help that family or that community or that person, even if it's just to make sure that they're safe, they have accommodation, they have groceries and they are supported for the next 14 days, that's one less thing that they need to worry about. It sounds like you find this work really rewarding and enriching. How did you originally get into public health? That's a great question. Um, I, I feel a little bit like I fell into it, um, but that's not entirely true. I, I, um, during my year off, after working in clinical medicine, I 
was encouraged to do a master's in public health. And I guess I've always been interested in the bigger picture. So when you look at um, someone who's got an infection, for example, being able to look at, well, what supports are around the person that you're giving a medication to. So if you're not looking after the grandparents and the parents, if you're not providing safe drinking water, for example, then all the different measures that you do in acute care may not really have the best outcome. And so I guess that led me to do a master's in international public health. And that's where you meet a lot of people from all walks of life, different clinical backgrounds. And I guess one of the things I loved about public health was you, you work with different individuals, different clinicians and experts, also non-health experts. And I think that for me was, I guess, that team approach that you need to be able to take the best of everyone's expertise and look at how do you, you know, put together a plan that works for the majority of people. You need, you know, recognising that there are so many amazing clinicians who work on the individual person. So I felt, for me, the, the core was really about the population approach. Yeah, and, wow. and I guess I was fortunate to have opportunities to do training in Western Sydney. There was a consortium at the time, and I guess... It just all kind of worked out from there. Thanks so much for your time today, Dr. Shopner-Bag. We've really enjoyed your company again. Just to kind of wrap up this episode, I suppose, is there anything, any personal reflections that you had from this year, anything that you've learned about yourself or your work or your team that you want to share with us just to finalise? I think um, it is a challenging year and I think one of the things I've recognised and I get asked about and comments about is that when you feel like you don't have any more to go, like you don't have any more energy because you're just exhausted, you've always got 40% more in the tank. And it's something that, you know, someone close to me keeps saying to me. And I, I always don't really, I guess, understand that metaphor because you often use it in the army, you use it in marathon runners, you use it in people who do endurance sports and I've, or even in surgeons or medical clinicians who work all night and do all nighters. Um, for a lot of staff working shift work, I think they challenge and put themselves through a lot more um, extreme conditions than I would have considered myself to be. But it's the longer term goal of trying to sustain a healthy uh, mind and body and approach because if you look after yourself now and slowly just continue to do that, we need to be able to do this for the next year to two years, maybe mm. longer. And we don't know what another challenge will be in, in the future. Um, and I think it's just having belief in yourself that when you think you can't go on, you've always got a little bit more. But it's, it's I guess, surrounding yourself with people who can help you work through some of those those things and giving you energy and always taking time to rest. I, I'm probably the first person to say that sometimes not knowing how to switch off. <laughs> I think the one thing I've learned is being able to say when I'm not at work, really trying to do non-COVID things, no work emails, um, and really trying to just have a rest, even if it's just for a day. It's really important for me to be better when I am at work. Yeah, absolutely. Rest and, and having good people around you. I think that's so important for anyone right now. Absolutely. Shopton, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks, Harrison. Thanks for joining us, everyone, for the latest episode of Western Sydney Health Check. Don't forget to go to our website and catch up on all the past episodes, including our first chat with Dr. Shopner Bag back in March. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Western Sydney Health Check. 
This podcast is produced by Western Sydney Local Health District. For the latest news, visit us at thepulse.org.au.